turn of the last century, a Harvard psychologist named William James gave a lectureship at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and he entitled that lectureship, Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh, Professor James was taken with the incredible diversity of religions in America. That wasn't the case in the old country. You had one church back in Europe, but in America, because of this idea, that God is in every human heart. You had a little group of people over here, a little group of people over there, a little group of people over here, starting different kinds of churches with different kinds of styles and all kinds of flavors. And he noted this variety of religious experience and he started observing it and he started studying it. And if I can remember that book from my seminary training, I can kind of hear Professor Wayne Oates, that pioneer of pastoral care, whispering in my ear, now Charlie, come on, you can do it. There were four components of a religious experience that tied all of these experiences together. And let's see if this doesn't square and resonate with your own religious experience, your own ecstatic encounter with the holy. Uh, first was what William James called the ineffable. Uh, it is the indescribable. It is a direct experience from God that only you have had. Only you have had it. And our Alcoholics Anonymous and Recovery friends, I think, say it right. The God of your understanding. Because there is a revelatory side to God's appearance to us, but there's also a receptive side. I think in the life of this church, we honor both. I believe that we do submit ourselves to a revelation from God in Jesus Christ described in Scripture, but we also have that experiential uh, component that we have an emphasis on everyone's receptivity of the holy. This direct experience from God, the ineffable, it's indescribable. You cannot put it into words. You might even say, I wish you could have been there. And we say that to each other and, and we smi smile and say, well, I had my own experience and I was there in a sense. Secondly, is this knowledge that comes through faith. This was notable for that Harvard scholar to recognize the knowledge of religious experience that is just as important and just as valid as empirical science. And he was writing this at the day and time of the zenith of the scientific method, right? When we were trying to demythologize all our religions. Well, here comes a Harvard professor seeking understanding, yes, but also validating this realm called faith. Third, the experience is temporary. It, it is of short duration. It cannot persist. If it could persist, you wouldn't be in the real world. You would be in some fantasy world. And that's the reason why when some of our friends in their delusion, maybe psychological distortion, maybe some kind of mental illness, try to sustain that mountaintop experience day after day, month after month, year after year. Well, that doesn't really, that doesn't really square. It's not consistent with the vagaries of the human experience. And then uh, the last feature of a religious experience is it cannot be controlled. You're not in charge of it. It's not something you can order. In fact, when you least expect it.
Here comes the inbreaking of the divine spirit. And it sort of overcomes you. And it seizes you. And you have an out-of-body experience. I had an experience like that in my ordination in the First Baptist Church of Pontotoc, Mississippi in 1980. I had served that little Northeast Mississippi congregation, Southern Baptist Church, the two previous summers, and then for the better part of the year in 1980, I began seminary in the, in the seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. In the fall of that year, I went back to be ordained the last Sunday of September of 1980. Uh, my dear beloved pastoral mentor, John Claypool, drove up from his congregation in Jackson where, that he was serving. He preached my ordination sermon. I'll never forget what he said. He said, Charlie, before you can go into all the world and preach the gospel, you have to go into all of yourself and let Jesus preach the gospel to every single part of yourself before you can take the gospel into the world. What a batch of good common spiritual sense that is. And I'm trying to listen to Jesus preach to the innermost parts of myself to this very day. And I knelt before that congregation, and Gordon Sansing, uh, the pastor there, still with us, still my friend, we talked not a long time ago, had every member of the congregation, not just the deacons, but every single member of the congregation that was so moved, from children to the eldest senior adult, come through and lay their hands on me. And if a cattleman had taken a hot iron out of a fire and branded me with a brand it wouldn't have been any more powerful those children I can feel their hands in my hair right now and I was a puddle and I wept and wept and wept because it was my variety of a religious mountaintop experience you hadn't had it quite like that. And I haven't had it quite like yours either. Jesus took the church up on a mountaintop. That's what Mark means in the passage that Dana read a moment ago. He took Peter, he took James, he took John, he took the church. They were the leaders of the church. This is written in about 55 AD after the church is formed. He took the church to the mountaintop. We went to the mountaintop in our adult retreat a couple of weeks ago. Some of us I perhaps had a religious experience there. I've heard people testify about it. Perhaps you have had that kind of experience on an adult retreat before. Or perhaps it was a revival service or maybe a youth camp or maybe vacation Bible school or maybe some kind of retreat setting when you drew apart by yourself, this is what the text says, alone, just you and God. And the Holy Spirit shows up and Jesus shows up and on this day, Moses and Elijah showed up too. The great liberator, the great prophet, the one who, as I said in early service, uh, colorfully, metaphorically speaking, could spit beech nut in Pharaoh's eye, as Hank Williams Jr. 
would sing in a country music song. The one who laid the rod on the Red Sea and the waters parted. And then when the enemy gets in the middle of the river, it, the waters collapse on them, drowning the pursuing enemy. The one who was given the tablets of the great rule by which we should live, those two tablets. The one who was in the very presence of God on Mount Sinai. He showed up with the church that day. And then Elijah was there. Elijah that called down fire from heaven and consumed and flamed the drenched altar of Baal. The one who preached the word of God in such a way that God appeared. He was there too. And Jesus, Peter is flipping out. He is off the chain. And he says, my goodness, we're going to stay right here. We want to stay on top of this mountain for the rest of forever, and we're going to stay here. In fact, we're going to build dwelling places, tabernacles. We're going to, we're going to memorialize this. We're going to institutionalize this so that we can have this experience ongoing. None of this William James of limited duration. We're going to have this for the rest of forever. Stay right up here. We're not going to come down off the mountain. We're going to live on this mountain and we're going to build a monument to Moses and a monument to Elijah and a monument to Jesus and, uh, and I'm going to be, he didn't say this in the text, but he might have said, and I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be the one who's in control of this because it feels so good. Jesus is terrified, which is an interesting feature of the story. It's not a part of my sermon, but I want to flag it and leave that with you. And then Moses and Elijah go away, and only Jesus remains, and then a voice that speaks words, the same words that Jesus hears at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen. To him. And then the next line is Jesus led James and Peter and John back down off the mountain. I don't know that I've ever had Elijah and Moses appear to me, but I've had great saints of the church appear to me. I bet you have too. Maybe in a dream, maybe in some kind of reverie of prayer. There are times when Francis Johnson, my daddy and hero, stands right beside me and speaks his words to me. There are times when I sing, for example, uh, he, uh, uh, in the garden, that wonderful old hymn. I love that hymn. I love these old hymns. See how old I'm getting? <laughs> he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And I can feel my father's arm uh, cradling my little boy neck as I stood in the back seat on the floorboard of that Studebaker and my daddy was driving and I'd drape my arms around his big torso and he'd reach up and cradle my head. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket but that was his favorite hymn and every time we sing that hymn my daddy appears to me. We were in Alumni Chapel and Southern Seminary, and the year would have been about 1982. Dale Moody was preaching 
that day, the chapel was full, as was the case. We didn't really go to worship. We went to learn how to preach. We had the greatest preachers in America to preach in alumni chapel, and all the young men and women preparing for the ministry, we had, you know, we wanted, we wanted to take notes and learn how to preach, and Dale was one of the best. He's gone on now, but it was a uh, sort of a normal sermon, and in the middle of this kind of garden variety meat and potatoes sermon, Dale's message, his presentation caught fire, and you could, the congregation was seized. You've been there. You know what that looks like and feels like when there's an unction of the Holy Spirit, and the uh, preacher is channeling the power of God's word and you're, you're there and the preacher's there and, and, and Jesus is there and there's this incredible sort of seizure, spiritual seizure of the people of God. We went up to Dale afterwards and said, Dale, what in the world happened to you in the pulpit? Your sermon caught fire about 10 or 12 minutes in and we were all just riveted and tears streaming down his face. Dr. Moody said, I'll tell you what happened. The spirit of my old professor, W.O. Carver, came and stood beside me in the pulpit. I believed him then, and I believe him now. And Elijah and Moses and Jesus were there, and then only Jesus remains this is the voice the church must listen to. We are informed by Moses. We are enriched by Elijah. We read the whole counsel of God, especially Paul. But Jesus is the hermeneutical key by which God's word is unlocked. And if it does not square with the teachings of Jesus, it is not God's will for us. Because we've had an experience with Christ. And it's different for everybody, but that experience is something like this. I felt a sense of cleansing. That my sins, which separated me from God, I felt were overcome by the love of Jesus. And that had something to do with what Jesus did on the cross. And something to do with what Jesus did in rising from the dead. I can't explain it. All I know is that I once was lost. But now I'm found. I once was blind. But now I see. And we have that experience. And it's different for every person. And you don't say it in the same way that Charlie says it, or the same way that Paul says it, or the same way that your pastor says it. Because it's in every human heart. It's a variety of a religious experience. Friends, God's other name is surprise. God is doing a new thing especially when we can't see it. And nostalgia is the conclusion that God is not up to anything new. 
And if church is an exercise in nostalgia, for if we could only get back to the way it was when Bob Hearn was here in 1956, if we could only get back to the way it was when Hardy Clemens came, why it was just a piece of cake on Charlie's watch. Goodness, if we just had Philip Wise back, he was such a, he was such a smart preacher, if we could get Ryan back, if Jake could somehow magically appear, if, 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 and all of those people and a whole bunch more would say, don't do that. Don't go back. Go forward. The rule of God moves forward. It is breaking into your midst. It is coming from outside of you. You don't know where it comes from. You're minding your own business and bam, here comes the inbreaking of God's presence to you. You can't order it. It doesn't last forever. You can't even describe it. It's what, it's what uh, James called the numinous. The big old seminary word. It doesn't even make sense. But it's pushing you forward. It is catapulting you into new expressions of ministry and mission. And it's getting you to the place. Don't go back to the glory days. The glory days were never glorious. Can you get that news flash? Glory days. They'll pass you by. Glory days. In the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days. Glory days. God's doing a new thing in this church. And the brilliance of this church is what that woman told these children. My dear friend Vicki. God's in everybody. This is the new thing Jesus started 2,000 years ago. It doesn't go back to Moses and Elijah. The whole religion, Steve, the whole Jewish religion, Steve and I had a discussion about it between services, was about if we can just go back and if we can do all these rules and all these rituals and all these customs and dot every I and cross every T, then we're going to be in right relationship with God. And Jesus comes along to say, forget all that. We're moving forward into a brand new day. And anytime the church does that, that is a church that is spirit-filled. That's a church in the power, the Pentecostal power of the resurrection. And that's what God is doing here. I was asked to go back to preach in the First Baptist Church of Pontotoc, Mississippi. It was some years ago. It was right after I performed my daughter's wedding, Chris Ann, to her wife, Ashley. And it was before the Supreme Court decision. Because I didn't need any Supreme Court telling me who God loved, who God accepted, and who God empowered. And I performed that wedding at our ranch in Desdemona. Somebody posted some pictures on Facebook. You can finish this story, can't you? Pastor, I don't know how to tell you this. 
but you can't come back to preach. I don't want to go back. I love those people. I love them dearly. They're still my beloved friends, but I don't want to go back. Do you really want to go back? I know this bunch. I know you. You don't want to go back. We're going forward. Where he leads, we'll go. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't stay on that mountain? He came down in the valley and he walks with us and talks with us and tells us we are his own. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all the people of God said, Amen. Our hymn of discipleship today is in your worship order we're about to sing, preparing our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. Uh, this, by the way, will not be an exercise in nostalgia. This is not what this is about. It is remembrance. It is getting remembered for the road ahead, put back together again for the road ahead. It is nourishment for our bodies for the road ahead. It is not some exercise in a myth that God is not up to anything new.